Welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. Some of you may think that my views on the multi-dimensional crises, the so-called Ten Horsemen of the Apocalypse, are extreme. They are extreme, but I argue there are grounds for this. I believe we live in extreme times. Those of you who have followed the podcast throughout will appreciate that not only am I trying to present a picture on a very wide campus, but that I have made many specific and bold claims, such as, we are in a disguised depression. Currently there is a long pause as a result of government monetary and fiscal intervention. A severe financial crisis is inevitable and is being postponed, yet augmented by government actions. The great dangers of monetary policy have created a massive credit bubble. Catastrophic debt levels are accelerating and lead to ruin. The dire situation of climate change and great scepticism concerning promises of major industrial countries to effectively cut back on carbon emissions. Severe climate change is no longer prediction, but fact. Many more claims have been made in the course of these podcasts, but simply with reference to these, I will now take some articles and reports from traditional and conservative economic and financial institutions that support these claims. Naturally, all of these commentators and reports are largely focused on their areas of speciality, but occasionally a more interdisciplinary view is presented. The authors are Rushir Sharma, the Morgan Stanley Investment Management's Chief Global Strategist and also writer for the Financial Times. Secondly, Thomas Malinin, CEO and Chief Economist of GNS Economics, an independent Helsinki-based macroeconomic consultancy specialising in forecasting and analysing the risks of the world economy and the financial markets. He is also adjunct a Professor of Economics at the University of Helsinki. Thirdly, Martin Wolf of the Financial Times, one of the world's most well-known financial and economics journalist. And fourthly, the Office of Budget Responsibility, UK, whose role is to examine and report on the sustainability of public finances to the British Parliament and Government. The sources to these articles are in the preamble text to the podcast. Of course, science is a contested field. It evolves by argument and evidence, and paradigms can change. Economics even more so, since it is not a science, it's more a specialised skill, more subject to controversy, changing opinions, different schools and fashions, and not least, political influence. Nevertheless, I wish to show that these arguments, which have been presented by myself in the course of these podcasts, have backing from respected sources who would not normally be associated with extreme thinking. So, with reference principally to the pandemic, economic, financial and climate crises referenced in the above-mentioned articles, I wish to summarise their arguments. Firstly, Rishi Sharma, whose article is The Two Big Reasons to Doubt the Global Boom, published in the Financial Times, 19th of July 2021. He cast doubt upon the recent optimism in the global community that there is now underway an economic boom following the pandemic suggesting there are cracks appearing in the US and Chinese engines of growth, the two economic superpowers, 
accounting for over one-third of the world output. He notes that, quote, China alone accounted for more than a third of growth in the world economy over the past five years. Any reduction of that growth has large negative impacts on the world economy. This is happening now, oddly enough, in the Chinese tech sector, the leading sector of the economy. Sharma writes, quote, In recent years, as the old economy industries of the commodities and manufacturing sectors have become mired in debt and decay, China's boom has been sustained by a new economy concentrated in the tech sector. Over the past decade, the digital economy's share of Chinese GDP has quadrupled to a staggeringly high 40%. China had no tycoon worth more than 10 billion a decade ago. Now it is nearly 50. Over the past year, China generated 238 new billionaires, more than twice as many as any other country. Most of that wealth arose in tech. The giant tech firms are a threat to the supposed total control of the state. This is not the first time that the Chinese Communist Party, CCP, has roped in a surging capitalism. Its excuse is that it needs to restrict monopolies or to gain control over big data that is in the hands of the tech firms, and data means power. It is also very afraid of a massive debt bubble that has been created by itself, the commercial banks and the shadow banking system. In addition, China is becoming, in terms of wealth, one of the most unequal countries of the world. Unsurprisingly, corruption is also rife. Plenty of excuses to step in, but the danger is a crash to the economy. No other economic sector could make up for a decline in technology. Since the crackdown began, the market capitalisation of Chinese tech has fallen by a third, or around $1 trillion, Sharma informs us. Also, the emergence of new tech firms, once so prevalent, has now disappeared. There is everything to play for in this new drama, but the deceleration of the Chinese economy compared to the past 30 years is very marked. The multiplier effects on the world economy will clearly be significant. The US is the other economic engine representing about one-fifth of global growth over the past five years. Despite the economy saving around $2.5 trillion during the pandemic, and despite President Biden's multi-trillion fiscal gift, predicted to total over 30% of GDP, Americans are spending only about a third of their pandemic stimulus checks and either saving or paying off debts. Consumer demand is very cautious. Sharma concludes, the United States is approaching a fiscal cliff. This is the difference between its taxation and its expenditure. And its excess expenditure is, of course, financed by exploding debt. New government spending will plummet sharply in coming months. Most economists are banking on extra strong consumption growth to pick up the slack. But history is not on their side. After a stimulus sugar rush, growth tends to fall back quickly. It is time to ponder the possibility that the economic boom will prove more transitory than expected. Unquote. 
Our next article is by Thomas Malinen. Inflation is here to stay and it should worry everyone, is its title. That is the GNS blog, 15th of July 2021. He points to the US increase in the consumer price index of 5.4% and the producer price index of 7.3% year on year. The shock, the inflationary shock, has clearly arrived, he notes. He warns that inflation will not be transitory but persistent, which will eventually force central banks to raise rates, the interest rates, with the ensuing and predictable catastrophic consequences likely. Unquote. Central bankers and governments, which are the root cause of this inflation, with their excessive money supply increases, quantitative easing, fiscal and liquidity stimuli, are caught in a trap and a potentially catastrophic scenario is closer than it has ever been. He gives the example of the European bond markets are in a massive artificial bubble where the excessive support from governments, central banks and national banks of seemingly endless debt has simply created ever more fragile and dependent economies and financial institutions. They all depend on artificially low interest rates and are being encouraged by hordes of economists who have lost sound theory. They are encouraged to engage in increasing debt because with interest rates at ultra-low levels, then repayments are obviously very low. But what happens when interest rates inevitably rise? A first-year student of economics would ask. Well, at its worst. Then the debts become unsustainable or even unpayable. Or countries are impoverished. Capital flight ensues, exchange rates plummet, wealth disappears. The authorities have been stoking a fire since the 2008 crash, and the consequences are now surfacing. Inflation is the manifest symptom of the underlying problem. Artificial low interest rates distort the whole economy, create moral hazard, and encourage speculative booms. If the central banks were to raise interest rates to tackle inflation, then the sovereign bond, the national country bonds, the debts, these markets and many other parts of the financial system that have gorged on cheap money will be in deep trouble. To avoid this, the authorities, in my opinion, perhaps Melinden's also, will let inflation rip, blaming it on other agents so that the value of debts is diminished by rising prices. But the majority of the population of the exposed countries are then impoverished and inequality increases. Thus we have all the conditions for deep social disturbance. The authorities are not in control of these market forces at all. They are flying blind and bereft of proper theoretical guidance. They are staggering from one crisis to the next, making ad hoc reforms as they go, largely hoping that consumer demand will pull them out of a recession. Moreover, the vast number of zombie firms in the corporate sector, only propped up by cheap money, in Europe, America, and as we now know in other parts of the world, including China, will also be fatally damaged by rising interest rates. Our long credit expansion since 2008 has created a perfect storm, a highly inflated bubble, in which not only financial markets but the corporate sector 
is at risk. Next, Martin Wolf's first article. Why further financial crises are inevitable. Financial Times, March the 19th, 2019. And he gives his central reason immediately, government and central bank mistakes. This is because financial regulation is pro-cyclical. It is loosened when it should be tightened and tightened when it should be loosened. This may sound like a Taoist enigma, but the meaning is quite straightforward. The cycle is the cycle of the booms and busts of the economy. So pro-cyclical means that you're synchronised with the cycle. And if you're contra-cyclical, anti-cyclical, you are, as we're restricting in times of boom and expanding in times of slump. So the received wisdom is that monetary policy, ideally, should be contracyclical. It should go against the cycle, that it should dampen the boom and it should encourage more demand and growth in the slump. However, Martin Wolf insists that it is pro-cyclical. He says we do in fact learn from history, we do learn these lessons, but then we forget them. So with respect to the great financial crash, it is true that regulation of banks has tightened since the crisis of 2008. Capital and liquidity requirements are stricter. The stress test regime is quite demanding. And efforts have been made to end too big to fail by developing the idea of orderly resolution of large and complex financial institutions. Yet complacency is unjustified. Since banks remain highly leveraged institutions with average ratios of assets to core capital of around 17 to 1, which is dangerously high. Therefore, their loss-bearing capacity is limited. Again and again, regulation is relaxed or insufficient during a boom. Indeed, the deregulation often fuels the boom. Then, when the damage has been done, and disillusionment sets in, and the bust arrives, the regulations are tightened again when it is too late. He next gives a number of reasons why this happens. The economic reason is that, over time, the financial system evolves and risk moves from the heavily regulated to less regulated parts of the system. The global financial system is complex and adaptable. It is also run by highly motivated people, motivated by money. It is hard for regulators to catch up with the evolution of what we now call shadow banking, which has evaded a lot of the regulations that have hit the commercial banking sector, the more official sector. The ideological reason for the pro-cyclical mistake by the authorities is the tendency to view this complex system through a simplistic lens. The more powerful the ideology of free markets, the more the authority and power of regulators will tend to erode. Naturally, public confidence in this ideology tends to be strong in booms and weak in slumps. Next, the political reason for this pro-cyclical mistake is that the financial system has control of vast resources and can exert huge influence in its favour, especially in the boom. In addition, corruption and criminality inevitably emerge since politicians ultimately control regulators. The political, corporate and financial elites feel entitled to their share of increasing wealth. Another reason is international competition. One jurisdiction for example, the Cayman Islands or Switzerland, tries to attract financial business via 
light touch regulation. Others then follow. And finally, the human tendency reason that this time it is different. And this is a kind of disaster myopia. The public gives irresponsible policymakers, he says, the benefit of the doubt and enjoys the boom. Over time, regulation weakens as the forces against it strengthen and those in favour of regulation are demoralised. The bigger the disaster, he says, the longer stiff regulation is likely to last in the slump. But this tight regulation will always be removed and the cycle starts again. Martin Wolf's second article, titled The G20 Has Failed to Meet Its Challenges, this is the Financial Times, 13th of July 2021, describes how the international economic community is failing in its task of providing collective action against the pandemic. And this is a bad sign for the policy for the climate crisis, which requires far greater sacrifices. The central reason for this is the deep international division in the world political and economic system. He comments on the recent July 2021 meeting of the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors in Venice, which he ironically describes, quote, a glorious city sinking under rising seas, unquote. He reminds us that the G20 contains 63% of the world's people, 87% of its output and the world's most powerful countries. It is, he says, our best chance for global economic governance. And yet he comments, referencing Samuel Beckett, quote, we meet, fail and promise to do better next time. But then we fail again. We do not fail altogether, but we fail on the big things. It is not good enough. We know that. But the knowledge is not enough. There have certainly been achievements, and he lists them. But his central feeling is that, with respect to the really big questions of the global pandemic and climate change, the world is way short of the mark. Cooperation is not really there, and that we are locked in our tribal divisions. He comments, quote, Even against such a self-evidently global threat, the pandemic, where the costs are huge and immediate, we seem unable to act with essential urgency, that is on a global level. The inability to cooperate in such an emergency makes one wonder whether the high priority need for a hugely enhanced global capacity to recognise and respond to health threats will be achieved. Given this signal failure, it is impossible to imagine we will do much more than fiddle while the planet burns. On climate, the challenge is more remote, the required changes in behaviour much larger, and the cooperation needed more difficult. He ends pessimistically as follows. Whether we like it or not, we have created a global civilization. We all border on one another and all affect one another. We may want to continue on our tribal way. Indeed, looking at emerging relations between the US and China, it is obvious that we do. But it will not work. We live in a globalised world on a shared planet. Are we capable of acting upon the implications? This is the biggest question of the 21st century. The answer, I fear, is no. Our final piece is a report from the Office of Budget Responsibility 
for the UK. Fiscal Risks Report to Parliament, July 2021. The OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, reports that Britain faces three large and, quote, potentially catastrophic risks from the pandemic, climate change and a ballooning debt mountain. The UK faces the triple threats as it emerges from the largest peacetime economic and fiscal shock in three centuries, unquote. The report to Parliament cautions and notes the following. I paraphrase. That rising inflation and potential interest rate hikes could put the UK debt mountain, standing at more than £2 trillion, that's the equivalent of 100% of GDP, under yet more pressure. The soaring levels of inflation may not be temporary. The global economic downturn brought about by the pandemic has been the worst since the Great Depression of the 1930s. The UK experienced one of the deepest recessions among advanced countries, with output falling almost 10% in 2020. However, fiscal policy response has been unprecedented in scale and scope in peacetime. According to the IMF, International Monetary Fund, the UK's rescue package amounted to £354 billion in total and was the third largest among 35 advanced economies after the US and New Zealand. Next, on climate change, the OBR cautioned in a stark warning over the fiscal threat posed by climate change, that is a threat to government income and its expenditure. It said that if there was no action at all to reduce emissions, UK debt would rocket to reach 289% of GDP by the end of the century. So it's now roughly at 100. So a catastrophic debt scenario is potentialised. Clearly, the earlier the action, the lower the later deficit. Well, yes to all of the above five pieces and their excellent writers. One of the distinguishing features of my overall view is that I am presenting an interacting systemic view of 10 multidimensional crises that in their totality present humanity with a fierce dilemma. Fundamental reform or extinction, or at the very least deep trauma to our species. Besides the crisis in the financial, economic, pandemic and climate sectors just mentioned in these articles, there is a wider range of concern in the military, technological, social and political dimensions. Even further afield is the large-scale clash of ideas, the great paradigms of our times, the materialist worldview versus the alternative worldview, or astoundingly new views of the cosmos and the nature of underlying reality. In addition, we have accelerating changes and interventions in human nature that are becoming more radical and invasive especially as we are being fused with artificial intelligence. We also have the great spiritual crises of our time, which in my view is fundamental to all the above. Moreover, there is a simple moral thread that runs throughout this argument. All these problems are the creation of the human species, especially in the industrial and post-industrial period. Not only ought it, but it can only be solved, therefore by us. Our problems are created by us, they are not acts of God or nature, accidents or the result of an alien intelligence. With regard to the supposed extremity of my view of the Ten Horsemen, and for those of you who find this disturbing, I can assure you I am not a depressive character. 
I do not wake up in the morning with a sense of gloom or despair, often quite the contrary. I am perfectly capable of relishing the pleasurable things of life, indeed valuing existence itself above everything. It is only after decades of study across many disciplines and close observation of the actual world we live in that I have found myself impelled to speak up, as it were. I, as much as anyone, want life, my own, my loved ones and the world's to continue. But this does not blind me to the actual state of the world. More important than study, it has been visionary experience that has informed what I am doing, given me the overall picture and allowed me to speak as deep as I am capable of. I believe that it is only by contemplating, and I use that word deliberately, as large a panorama as possible that one might approach the evolving crises of the times we live in. It's my conviction that the intellect, reason and argument only get so far in this task. Vision is required. <laughs>